0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. For today, doing a solo pod, I am your host, Cranjus McBasketball, as you know me on Twitter, uh, Tim here. And we are going to dig into the Lakers offense. And instead of just me monologuing on, on what I think is important and things I'm looking for and things I'm worried about, I went out and I asked you for your questions, and we got questions from the Discord, questions from Twitter, and I threw them all together in a Google Doc so I could just scroll through and see the questions, and it turned out to be like nine pages. So this might be more than one podcast. We don't want to go too long today, but we are really going to dig into some of those hot topics that you are curious about, that you're excited about, that you're worried about. And right off the bat, a couple things that aren't fully offense-related, but I got asked quite a bit we're starting five prediction. Russell Westbrook, LeBron, AD, they're going to start. If Marcus Saul is with this team day 1 of the regular season and he's he's playing, he's not retired, he's not he hasn't been traded, he hasn't been cut, I would anticipate he starts. And then I'm going to say Kent Bazemore at the two. The two guard is really where you can go a lot of different ways and I think it's important to not look at what you're putting together as like hockey lineups where you have a starting unit and a bench unit and you, you need to try to have both of them be as balanced and, and as good as possible. Things stagger, players stagger the lineups that you're putting together, especially with the Lakers this year, a lot of different things work. So to start with, I mean, Bazemore's solid as a two guy cause he can space the floor. He can handle the ball a little bit and, and be a second, you know, attack a closeout, but defensively, He is the best chaser option available that is still a a solid offensive spacing player. So that is why I'm putting him in as that two spot. You've got LeBron in there. He's going to be a shot creator. He's going to be a helper on defense, AD. and, And I can easily see this being AD starting at the five as well. That really shuffles up what you're doing. And I would only anticipate the Lakers do that if Gasol truly isn't going to be playing. But Assuming Gasol is, I still think AD can get two-thirds of his minutes per game at center. I'm not going to start that way, because I think it's easier to get everything to flow starting with a traditional five and then moving to AD at the five, but it's, I mean, it's really semantic. Starting doesn't matter. Um, Generally, starting equates to more minutes, but with AD, we know the minutes are there anyway. It's just a matter of what positions he plays them at, and so it's, I mean, it's already not quite an apples-for-apples thing, but... It's even less so in this situation, so I really don't care all that much. I'm hoping AD plays between 50 and 75% of his minutes at center, and the Lakers are leveraging the centers that they have on this roster for the rest of the center minutes in the regular season. Once we get to the playoffs, unleash AD. Uh, One way this could go in the regular season is AD say, hey, I want that DPOI, I want to be a defensive force, I don't care about the wear and tear, Like, put me in at center, I want to do it. And they say, OK. And they do. And if they do, we're going to see a more impactful regular season AD than we've seen in years, than we've seen as a Laker. And we, for the first time, might be seeing a true Defensive Player of the Year candidate. Not just the most talented guy, because he's been one of the most talented defensive players. But two seasons ago, he got some some noise for Defensive Player of the Year, but it wasn't really ever going to happen because he didn't really go full beast mode with the versatility and the switchability and the playing at center and all of that until the playoffs. And we see this in the data. We saw it in the film. Like, if you don't believe me, if you didn't want to go back and watch all the games, we could see that in the data where all of a sudden his matchup difficulty, his versatility, all these things jump, his impact jumps. That's why. When when you make AD more of just kind of a vanilla defensive player, even though he's really, really good at what he does as a perimeter, big rotating and being a help defender at the rim and, Everything he can do, if you don't pull out all of the bells and whistles with him, he's not going to be as impactful as he could be. And that's, I mean, that makes sense. That's fine. You don't need that in the regular season. But if he does end up starting at the five, that's the kind of guy we could potentially be looking at. And some of it depends on scheme coverages and, and uh, pick and roll coverages. But that's thats how that could look. So Russ, Bazemore, LeBron, AD, Gasol. I think is, is how I'd start to close. I'm going to have 80 at the five. Russ and LeBron are still going to be in there. I'd like Bazemore in there as well. And I like Trevor Ariza in here. Ariza is someone that, I think with this lineup, you've got five guys here that can switch a bit, that can play up some positions, down some positions. Uh, you've got some spacing. Now, with Bazemore and Ariza, you don't have two of the best three-point shooters between the two of them and then none and Monk and Ellington but you have the two guys that space the floor while being pretty solid defenders. And I I think you can throw none in here as well. Monk is someone I I struggle to see because teams will go at him. They'll target him. Uh, THT from a spacing standpoint, I just, I don't know that with this group, with the three stars in there at the same time, what he adds offensively is worth what he takes away offensively and defensively. So there's a lot of different ways you can go, but that's what I'm going to throw out there. That's my official closing five and starting five prediction. But again, it's it's all a fluid thing. A lot of this depends on how the team is going to be running things. If they're running different pick and roll coverages than I'm anticipating or doing different things offensively than we're anticipating, that you know ch- changes the way you should look at things. Uh, so we're going to adjust as things happen. We're not going to lock into a take and pound the table about it. But we're going to, you know, see how this plays out. But for right now, I think that's what I'm looking at. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not going to be upset if if Monk starts or Nunn starts or Ellington starts. There are a lot of different ways this could make sense. So I'm not going to get worked about worked up about a starting five. The closing five can also depend on who you're playing and what kind of defender you want out there. So lots of different options. Not a huge deal. But, you know, that's what I'm thinking right now. For a playoff rotation, if you had to pick like 10 guys, you've got Russ, you've got Nunn, you've got Bazemore, Ariza, LeBron, A. D. Dwight, I'll say you're gonna have another center in there. Not not a third center, but a second center. Uh I'll say THT. I think Mello, just based on positional scarcity, like he's got to play. And we'll say Malik Monk. It, it could be Ellington, it could be Monk, it could that, that position, that tenth guy can go a number of different ways. But, uh, oh, Rondo could be in contention for that. So it really kind of depends on how some of these shooters end up shooting this season, what the defense for certain guys looks like. Like if Malik Monk plays more to his strengths offensively and is more just a shooter, not trying to run pick and rolls, and defensively gets better, like improves, get, like actually gets better in a couple key areas, he has some upside. And he's someone that you can easily have in these groups. But right now, you have to have a healthy skepticism and say you oh, know this guy's a minimum player for a reason and he has his weaknesses but there you know there's some athleticism there's some shooting we just have to see how it plays out and that's just part of the process all right so now into the offense questions first question is this the best offense in the league how much will, will their defense hurt them and then he says, I'm taking the over every game. <laughs> if you take the over every game, I don't know, I'm not going to endorse that strategy, but I will certainly be rooting for more points every game. That's definitely more fun. Anytime you're taking the under, it's it feels like you're just rooting for for fun to not occur. So never a comfortable or fun place to be in, rooting for the under or betting the under. Now, is this the best offense in the league? I don't, I mean, you I, I can get there. But right now, you have to say Brooklyn's going to have, or they should have, the league's top offense. Who gets injured between them and the Lakers and other teams will obviously impact this. But everybody healthy from day one, I would anticipate Brooklyn probably should have the top, top offense. They just, they've got role players that work. They just got Paul Millsap, or they're, they're, I believe they're about to get Paul Millsap. That'll be a nice signing for them. And they've got three superstar guys that, can just go score. <laughs> like it's, It doesn't really take time to work through X's and O's and all these different things when they have some continuity and they also have just th- their identity offensively should stay the same. And they should be able to just go go play offense, figure it out, score a lot of points, go isolate between a uh, smaller guard in Kyrie, a bigger guard in James Harden, and a guy like KD. Like You can go find a weak link on every defense and just go attack them. So... If that team's healthy, that team is scary, and that team is probably going to be favored to win the title. We'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, I'll say Brooklyn's going to be the top offense. I'll say the Lakers have a chance to be a top five for for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if they're lower. I wouldn't be surprised if they're they're pushing for a top spot. It really comes down to uh, some swing players. And, and I've talked about swing skill. So we know what certain guys bring to the table. They're known commodity. But within their game, it might be like, all right, we know what his defense is. We know what his passing is. We we know what his finishing is. His shot, his three-point shot. He's had some up seasons, some down seasons. That is a swing skill for this player. If it works out, they're going to be great. If it do- – well, not great. They're going to be good. If it doesn't work out, they're going to struggle. And that is the type of, like, on a player-by-player basis, the type of thing that, like, we don't have all of the answers for all of these things because there's always some variance – and with specific skills, sometimes guys go up, sometimes they go down, and the year after year stability isn't quite there the way it is for a lot of other players. So by by targeting those guys, often for the minimum contracts or cheaper contracts, you have upside built in. You're going to churn through a couple of them probably if they don't pan out. These are, these are darts, uh, throws at a dartboard in a way, but that's how swing skills really factor into things. Now, I think the Lakers as a whole have several players that kind of match that and as a team they have some swing players i'd say overall like we know what lebron is we know what ad is we know what russ is what is kendrick nunn what can malik monk be what kind of shooting is kent Bazemore going to give us what kind of shooting is trevor reese going to give us is marcus all playing is marcus all looking good is he looking not good like go go watch some marcus all film before he got covid and he looks like a completely different guy than after he got covid and there's definitely the Lakers fan base and i think all fan bases can really get a hive mentality at times where they point out something somebody's bad at and and then you just see it more and then you're you know everyone's like yeah this guy stinks you know bench him trade him cut him <laughs> and things can they things can snowball a little bit quickly and i think this past season we and i know as a discord we got too low on Marcus Saul and we had to do some course correcting over this offseason go back on some, you know, watch some film, be like, oh, you know what? Actually, this wasn't all that bad. <laughs> it felt bad in the moment, but it wasn't all that bad. And that can help, you know, remove the emotion of a playoff series, remove the emotion of, of trying to avoid a play-in game. Like, that can help get you more of a level head and, and better talent assessment. There are several guys, though, that, like, depending how Marcus All looks, if he looks like pre-COVID Marcus All, who was a top top five center defensive impact player in the league during the regular season. That's very different from the guy that the Lakers got right after COVID. So how that turns out is, is important. What Rajon Rondo looks like is important. Uh, Tom and I doing a pot on him and he has several skills that when he was a Laker, like the shot wasn't all that great. His finishing at the rim was okay. There are certain areas that he's gotten better or he had, he had a better season this most recent season with the Clippers that make me think like, oh, <laughs> are we getting an even, you know, a more refined version of Rajon Rondo back? Because that would be something. Uh, but, well, you know, lots of guys where I can see upside and I can see the downside. So if the right things hit and, and you've got Russ and Melo kind of buying into the roles they need to buy into and, and cutting down on some of the shots that with the Lakers te- with this Lakers roster, you'd consider them to be bad shots, this offense does have a top five ceiling. It it has a top one, top two ceiling. It just, we we have to see how those chips fall. Now, he also asks, how will their defense hurt them? I think there are two key ways your defense can hurt you. So one, if your weaker defenders need to just play less because they're weaker defenders, I can certainly see how that hurts the offense. Like, let's say Wayne Ellington or, or Malik Monk, let's say they're doing great offensively, they're knocking shots down, they're, they're, uh, Ellington's a great go screen guy, off screen guy. Those things are really helpful to the offense. But if their minutes are limited because their defense isn't good enough, that certainly hurts your offense. So that's one piece of this that could play out. And knowing Frank Vogel, it will matter. So, you know, of any team, of any coaching staff, this is a staff that if you're not playing defense, you're probably not going to play. We just saw a Ben Mclemore not really do all that much with the Lakers even though he was supposed to be that shooting guy that came in uh, and on a team of guys that couldn't knock down shots still wasn't able to get on the court because his defense was not up to the standard that the Lakers had the second piece of this is that you're going to be less effective offensively when you're taking the ball to the rim compared to getting a steal or getting a rebound and running even if LA is an awesome running team if their defense is bad enough that like opponents are just scoring a lot and they need to inbound the ball, they're not going to be able to run as often. And that is a concern of mine. So you, you have to care about, care about defense. You have to try on defense. And I think this Lakers team can be good on defense. If they are, that is directly going to feed their transition game and that is going to help us see the best offensive version of this Lakers team. If the Lakers are a really poor defensive team, we will not see a top three offense if they're a good defensive team, we have a much better chance of seeing a top offense because transition can be switch, such a a key swing area for this for this team, for this roster. And I'll say Russell Westbrook certainly part of that. He's going to help the team's ability to run everywhere he's been. They're they're running more and he is going to get a lot of those coast to coast get a board, get a steal and just run it down the floor, run it down the floor, get a shot up. Maybe he doesn't make it, but maybe a teammate gets an offensive rebound, puts it in just immediately pressuring the defense. Uh, If you saw the clip that Tom put together on Kendrick Nunn recently, looking at his transition game, just the fact that he's out there sprinting. He's he's being a great wing runner in transition, filling the lane, filling the lane hard and presenting himself as an option. Those types of guys are going to be really, really helpful and fit really well with Russ. And I'm excited to see how that can look. Now, We do have to reset expectations a little bit if we're looking at how Russell Westbrook teams have fared offensively from an offensive efficiency standpoint, even accounting for offensive rebounds and putbacks and all that. Looking at the difference between Westbrook team's offensive efficiency after a missed shot is rebounded by him versus when a a missed shot is rebounded by one of his teammates, has been at times dominant in elite and from in seven seasons from 2009 to 2016 there was like an eight point offensive rating boost just from when he would get the board when when anyone else when i don't know uh steven adams gets the defensive board and then the the okc goes and runs great they're, they're they're good when russ gets the board and he's the one pushing they're even better and they're, they're much better. They're scoring 125 points per hundred possessions, 130 points, 120 points, like dominant numbers. Now, once we get to 2016, 2017, and on, his volume has been even higher. But you can tell he's been forcing things, and that efficiency boost isn't there anymore. So it's good in that he's he's get when he gets aboard, he's going to push. That's helpful and he's seeking out more defensive rebounds on purpose to try to push but the team like on the from a team standpoint it isn't more helpful when he's the one getting that board or i'll say it hasn't been more helpful when he gets the board compared to one of his teammates getting the board when he goes coast to coast his teams through the past 5 seasons have lower offensive ratings than when a teammate gets the board and on average the offensive rating is about 1 point lower when when he's the one pushing so just a little bit of context there. A lot of times, I think we can romanticize players, uh, for who we use, who we knew they used to be. And if we were to go through like Melo and Russ and Dwight and all these guys that are coming in, Trevor Ariza, Ellington, like all at their peak forms, you're gonna look at this Laker team and say, "How can they lose?" But we're looking at the 2021, 2022 forms, and it's a little bit different. So over the past five seasons, Russ pushing in transition hasn't been the same guy individually as a scorer his efficiency has plummeted several seasons to being like really bad uh and part of that is just I mean he's just forcing things he's he's not going with the flow he's getting down there he's forcing shots up if he can't get to the rim he's taking jumpers that he shouldn't be taking early in the jump shot that for him are bad shots and the only reason that He's able to overall have a solid transition impact is because of his passing. So big picture, it's still okay. You know, we want him pushing. If he is able to continue pushing but be a little bit smarter about his shot selection while still continuing to be a great passer, he can get back to that dominant form. And that is what this Lakers team is going to need if they want to get to that top three offensive rating uh, kind of threshold. So he hasn't been there recently. He can get back to that, hopefully. And it's going to take buy-in on his part. He's got some great guys flanking him, running in transition. And he's just got to you know, realize that and, and make sure that he's aligned with the team's goals and trying to be the most effective they can and not forcing things up. All right, so the next question, does it make more sense to start the least dynamic offensive players, like Bazemore and Ariza, along with the big three, to save the microwave scorers, Nunn, Monk, Mello, they list, for the bench unit. Or should we save a defender or two for that bench unit, a la Alex Caruso? So, roles matter, position fits matter, and this hints at that. But there's enough staggering of players within lineups, or at least there should be, that I wouldn't look at this as starters versus bench lineups. Like, when, having three stars, you're going to have some time where all three of them play together, but you're going to have a lot of time where two of them play together and some time when one of them plays together. But you shouldn't really have minutes where none of them are out there. And when, like, is out there by himself, I can see a lot of, like, post, post-up-centric offensive attacks when Braun is out there by himself or Russ is out them, out there by himself – I can see a lot of isolation, pick and roll, like there, there are ways to make these guys work and allow them to be the primary offensive engine for your team and not really, like you You obviously want as much creation out there as you can, you want as much shooting out there as you can, It's it's a skill set thing, but given how much balance you can have with between shooting, defense, and creation with all the different bench players the Lakers have, I'm not... Super worried about this. And I think you can just look at like, hey, what's our best starting group? And then how can we flow lineup to lineup into other groups of players that work really well? And that's why, like, with the recent pod where Tom and I went over non-LeBron lineups, there were a lot we liked and a lot that made sense and a lot where we said, hey, the same group, but swap this guy in for that guy. And it's it works just about the same way. That flexibility is a huge, huge factor for the Lakers this year. If someone goes down by injury or if someone doesn't pan out or the shot's not falling, they have options. So while I do think, like, let's say in a closing lineup, I, I think having base and Ariza in there makes sense. Like, you don't need the extra creation. You want some, like, solid defense and some guys that can knock down open shots. Whereas if you have a primarily bench lineup, having a Kendrick Nunn out there, Or having a Malik Monk out there, like that can be helpful. Having Rajan Rondo out there can be helpful. So balancing skill sets lineup to lineup does matter and is important. It's just it's it's hard to give a blanket answer when throughout the course of the game you're gonna play fifteen different lineups and you need to figure out for as many of those as possible, how can we have a solid balance? That big picture works out well. All right, next question. What are the ideal roles in an in an effective offense. Say, for example, one creator, two off-ball players, et cetera, and how many such lineups can L.A. roll out? L.A. can roll out a lot of things. Um, and I'll say you want all the shooting, creation, finishing, and defense, you can. Offensively, you want that shooting, you want that playmaking, and you want that finishing. For the Lakers, the, I think this is the recipe. You've got I, I want to have one finisher out there at all times between Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard. That's your, like, non-spacing finisher. Now, yes, AD is more of a spacer than Dwight. He'll hit his threes. AD, at his best, is a finisher, and he's attacking the rim. So we only want one of them out there at the same time. We don't want AD with Dwight or AD with, let's say, DeAndre Jordan if he gets signed. AD's best version of AD is with AD as the only non... As the only, like, interior guy that's, like, starting from the interior. You can have guys penetrating to the interior, but... I only want AD camped out in the post or in the dunker spot when he's out there. I don't want him standing in the corner because Dwight's in the post and AD becomes a jump shooter. So we want one finisher. Give me one primary creator between Russell Westbrook and LeBron James and as many spacing guys and secondary creators as you can. And now LeBron and Russ can also be secondary creators in a lineup. So you can have Bron as your primary, AD your, your your finisher, Russ is a secondary, and then focus on spacing and go get me a, a nun and a monk or an Ellington or so a reason more, I think are a tier below some of these guys, but you, those are I think the three key elements. And there's enough there are enough options of each of these that you can come up with a just a bunch of different lineups that have I'd say proficient levels of these three key areas. You just don't want to run out a lineup where like. Kendrick Nunn is your primary offensive creator, I don't think, or Malik Monk. Like, you're, you're going to have times where you need to do that, but those are going to be the lineups that struggle, or THT is your, your primary creator. Hopefully, THT can make another jump this year. I think he's going to have a breakout season. I see defensively him being able to ramp it up even more on top of what he was already doing last season, which, which was pretty positive. But we'll see. I don't know. I'm not fully bought into the playmaking that Kendrick Nunn and Malik Monk give you. I don't know that the Lakers are either. They signed Rajon Rondo for a reason. If he is playing, that I think speaks to the level of playmaking they think they have in these in, in some of these other guys. Uh, so, I don't know. To answer this, I want a finisher, I want a primary guy, and then secondary creators and spacers around so that if the ball's kicked out and there's an open three, it's going to get knocked down. If the ball gets kicked out and there's like a semi-contested three because somebody's closing out hard, somebody's out there that can go attack that closeout. All right, given Vogel's mindset when it comes to offense, how close to optimal do you think that this Lakers coaching staff is likely to get this group from an offensive standpoint? So to frame this, optimization ratings are something we've calculated at B-Ball Index where we look at the talent of the team, the talent of the roster compared to the impact that the team is able to get out of the roster, and look at the difference there as the optimization. If you have a B roster that you're getting A impact out of as a whole, you're doing a good job. If you have a B roster that you're getting C impact out of, you're not doing a great job. If you if, if one coach has a C roster and he's getting B impact and the other coach has a or an A talent roster and he's getting B impact, same impact, but they're, they're, the starting points are different. And one's overperforming, one's underperforming. And that's why it's hard to evaluate coaches just based on team success because they don't always have a great hand. But if they play it really well, they're a good player. It just you, you can't only look at the the top of the top and assume that those are the only ones doing a great job but back to Vogel he historically has been around a c c plus c minus offensive optimization guy with a defensive optimization we don't do a pluses but he's he's getting a's with this group in some ways it'll be an easier group to work with because there's just there's there's good shooting. Like the bar is lower this year than it was last year to be strong with X's and O's and tactically because you have more playmaking and you have more shooting. And that should help. If Ellie moves away from Gasol as DeAndre Jordan and is playing Anthony Davis at power forward like 50% of the time or more, along with Dwight or, or DeAndre Jordan, and you have THT or Russ out there, or possibly Rondo and the staff continues to be poor with their, their X's and O's counters when teams are, excuse me, sagging off of non-shooters, and on top of that, like Russ and Mello are making bad decisions with shots, that's, you know, altogether how you can end up underperforming. And I don't think all of those things will happen. Some of them will happen to varying degrees, but between the fact that this is an easier fit for Vogel and some of those downsides that I'm sure will pan out to different amounts... I'll say B minus. I'll say when we go back and, and grade this roster out and grade out the, the optimization of the roster, my guess is that we get a B minus performance out of the staff, which which is good. It's not excellent, it's not elite, but it's good. And I can see if if some of these things that I'm talking about pan out in the right way, if the Lakers keep Gasol and they've got that good spacing and 80's not out there often with a big man that's that's clogging things up for him and we also don't have like a lot of those things don't need to happen if I think the range here is from like a C plus to like a B plus. And I think that's positive. And and that would be a good step up from a vocal standpoint and something I'd be happy with. Because you know defensively, you're going to do great. And you know offensively, or so defensively from an optimization standpoint, you're going to do great. And offensively, the talent that you're working with is pretty solid. So that, that really helps. All right, the next question is, Are there any aspects you think will surprise people? Any misconceptions you think will be cleared up? What's my biggest concern right now? Uh, Let's start with surprises. Misconceptions. With lots of new players coming in and, and pieces needing to fit together in different ways, there's plenty of opportunity for misconceptions. I think right now, a little bit too much emphasis is being placed on what Malik Monk and Kendrick Nunn, some of these other guys can do. In roles they won't need to fill for the Lakers. Like I, it, good for you, Malik Monk, if you can do more than be a good like catch and shoot, three-point shooter. But on this team, you're gonna be doing a lot more of that. Uh in and, and speaking of Monk, there's also been a bit of overestimation with some of his offensive abilities. Like I get it, he is he's a great dunker, he's athletic, he's a poor defensive player, and that is going to impact his playing time if we know anything about Frank Vogel. If you've been paying attention, that is going to matter unless he starts getting better. And that's something I'm hoping it happens. Uh, if, if he can get better defensively, start of this some of this upside can be, it, it has a chance to be realized. Because if he's improving offensively, let's say he gets his pick and roll game to be better, but his defense can't keep him on the court, you're not you're really reaping the rewards. Uh, offensively, he will at times be a pick and roll player, but he's not been a good one. That's That's the thing, like, it's like a luxury for the Lakers to have Nun and Monk and some of these guys be able to do some of that if, like, Russ were to go down. But part of why I'm excited about their fit with this team is because they don't need to do that anymore because they haven't been great at that. This this Malik Monk was a guy who was benched on his own team this past year. He didn't play all that many minutes because of this and because of his injury. And if we look at his pick-and-roll ball handler offensive efficiency, he it's gone down season after season after season. The, the, the Hornets don't want him running as many ball screens as he initially was. 21st percentile efficiency, 44th percentile, then 24th percentile. That is not good. That is not average. That is not going to cut it on this team. And this isn't me hating on him. This is, you know, there are areas that are weak with his game that he was asked to do more of in Charlotte that he, along with none, are in positions with L.A. to be more effective players by getting able to by being able to cut out those elements of their game, uh, you know chop out those pieces of your game, like Tom likes to talk about, and do what you're good at doing and what's going to be helpful for the team. So, I think we should be way more excited about his three point shooting and his attacking closeouts, uh, and you know what he's able to do as a cutter or potentially an off screen guy. He hasn't been an effective off screen guy, but those are some areas of his game that will be more under the microscope cuz those are what going to th- those skills will be what matters on this team. I don't I hope he's not running a bunch of pick and roll uh you know possessions. That wouldn't be a good sign. That would tell me he's either being misused or guys that are are injured <laughs> and either of those situations are not good. I'll say that what else? Russell Westbrook as a pick and roll player is one that I've mentioned several times, I'll hit on again and again, he's been best with a popper in the past, not rollers. You can point to Daniel Gafford or Steven Adams in the past and say, like, oh, look what he made these guys. <laughs> Neither of those worked all that well from a pick-and-roll standpoint. If you look at their efficiencies or the team's efficiency when those when those possessions were happening earlier in Russ's career when defenses weren't as smart and they were just going under, going over his ball screens, he was able to, you know, feed lobs to to, to Stephen Adams, find dump offs. Like that is what will happen if you go over on him and you let him try to penetrate, and you and you really get that two v one for the offense against that one big man defender. But if you're going under ball screens, which is what teams have done more and more in recent years, and in the playoffs they'll do even more. That's where the water gets shut off. And I mean, point at a guy like Clint Capella. He's a much better roller than either of those other two guys were. He's a much better lob threat. And he, you know, his pick and rolls with Russ in Houston weren't all that effective. If you can just go under and drop, that takes away the roll. Like, of any pick and roll coverage, the one combo of what the ball handlers defender and the screeners defender are doing That really cuts off roles is going under and playing drop coverage, and that is what teams do against Russell Westbrook more than almost anybody in the NBA. It's it's like almost it's not quite Ben Simmons levels, but like he's like the next guy down. So it's the pick and pop guys who have been the best with him, and it's the pick and pop with Marc Gasol or with let's say Boogie Cousins if he gets signed. Like that is what I'm excited about. Uh, and I see that as being able to really set up Russ for success in ball screens. And that's why I'm hoping we don't see like a Russ, LeBron, AD, Dwight, I don't know, Bazemore, Monk, whoever, pick whoever you want it, at shooting guard. That is not going to be a lineup that is super conducive to pick and rolls. Cause you've got two bigs. You've got just, it, it seems like a nightmare scenario to try to find lobs. If we do see them and they will happen, they're going to happen. These teams, like these guys are playing thousands of minutes. We will see times where they go under, and they drop, and the lob's still there. It'll just be there less often than if any other pick-and-roll coverage were happening. And it'll be less effective basketball than if Russ had a pick-and-pop partner. And if he does have a pick-and-pop partner that's knocking down shots, that's going to impact how the defense can guard his ball screens, and that's going to open things up for Russ to get to the rim. And, and I'm very much in the camp of, like, set your stars up to do what they do best as as effectively as possible. Like, clear the way. Let these guys be who they're supposed to be. Let them make that money. Don't make life hard for them. And that this has been a big misconception about Russ as a pick-and-roll player. I still think, like, driving to the rim, just from a dump-off standpoint, he's going to feed some of these dudes. But from, from a ball screen standpoint, there's a better way to really optimize what he's doing, and that's why... I like when I'm building out rotations in our Lakers rotation tool that I've tweeted out several times having some Russ plus Mark minutes together. Another thing that, I mean, I think we're right to be excited about, but I want to pump the brakes a little bit, is, is just my caution in the trust of shooting with this group. It should be better than last year. It will be better than last year. But Monk, Nun, Ellington, Ariza, and Bazemore – um, or I'm sorry, not Ellington, but Monk, Nun, Ariza, and Bazemore have all had somewhat sketchy three-point shooting backgrounds where they've had some down seasons, some up seasons. All of them are coming off of a good season. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of these guys just didn't shoot all that well this year relative to their shot quality. Now, given what their shot quality should be, they should still shoot a, a decent three-point percentage. But from a three-point shot-making standpoint, if we think about the metric we use at B-Ball Index, I wouldn't be surprised if if one or two of these guys flames out. Hopefully, zero or one at the most. You can afford to have one of these guys flame out, and from a rotation standpoint, that's fine because you're probably going to give somebody a DNP CD every game anyway. But you don't want to have any of those guys in in that sort of situation. So that's something to keep an eye out for. And I also have like legitimate worry t- as to how much we can expect Carmelo Anthony and Russell Westbrook to suddenly fall more into line with their scoring profiles in a way that matches. their should be roles on this team. So like Melo, like Melo had been the third, he had the third most scoring possessions per game for Portland this past season. That's a lot. Russell Westbrook has been forcing things for years uh, and, and been at like an insane level of inefficiency that is stomachable because he's also an elite playmaker. Uh, and, like, he's going to put up the counting stats, but the the inefficiency is, like, striking. It's like anybody else, it, it, like, if you take the name away and the playmaking is good, not elite, you say, like, how are you playing this player? <laughs> like, who, who, like, is this Andre Roberson that, like, you need him out there for his defense? Um, that's how much Russ has just been forcing things because he's still really good at certain elements of his game, but when he's forcing shots up, a lot of those shots that are forced up are shots he's not great at, which are those jumpers. So you want to avoid having him doing more than he needs to be doing. And I think this is a great situation for that. I think it's the same with Melo. But I also don't know exactly how, like some of that will still exist. We're still going to see stretches for the, where the two of them are forcing things. And among those stretches, we're going to see sometimes where it's working out really well. Where we're going to see Melo ISO three times in a row and all the shots are going to go in. And we're going to say, yeah, vintage Melo. And then he's going to have like six in a row another game where nothing goes in. And we're going to, like, you know, be upset with the dude. But that's just kind of what happens. So, I I don't know. Big picture, you want everybody kind of buying into a role and understanding the goals of this team and how to get there. And it'll just come down to who's buying into that. All right. Let's see. We'll do one more. If Rajon Rondo... No, you know what? We'll save that one. We're going to save that one. Let's do this one. If DeAndre Jordan replaces Marcus on this roster, how will that center rotation impact the offense? Can it be similar to how the McGee-Dwight combo did two seasons ago? This is a question I've gotten a number of times. I think it's a legit question to ask. I'll say first, defensively, uh, it'll depend on what ball screen coverages you run. If you're going to run like a drop coverage, yeah. You you run that no-man-behind drop with uh, Dwight and JaVale. I'm sorry, not not Javale, Dwight, and DeAndre Jordan. Yeah, that's that's a much better way to use them than like switching or doing what the Lakers did this past season. Offensively, I think. I mean, Dwight and Javale that year were both better lob threats than like present day Dwight Howard and present day DeAndre Jordan, um, who are still both good finishers. But DeAndre Jordan isn't where he used to be. Like I went and looked at clip after clip of him finishing at the rim, and he catching a roll like let's say like a bounce pass he catches at the center of the paint takes one dribble jumps off of two feet he's able to finish strong and he's gonna like do a pull up and like pull his legs up and like make a show out of it as much as he possibly can which you know just to remind you like hey I'm very good at finishing uh so so good for him we're gonna see a good bit of that if he if he signs with the Lakers but uh whenever he was trying to catch a lob and and he was kind of jumping off one foot or, or or you know didn't quite have a runway the lift he was getting was not the same as it used to be and i think that's to be expected and, and his struggles there are part of the reason why the nets aren't as excited about him as well as the fact that like nicholas claxton is he's he's rising he's he's gonna be good um but deandre jordan i think you know he's gonna have good finishing numbers he's not quite that same, like just like stand there, I can throw the ball in your general vicinity and you're going to smash it through the rim the way that uh, Dwight and Javail were that season. But I still think, you know, he can do his job well. Uh, the thing about it is if Dwight and DeAndre Jordan both finish well, both do their jobs well, part of the, the problem here is just the nature of them on the court with AD Makes it harder for AD to play inside and it makes it more likely that he's gonna be a jump shooter. It's just been reality. It doesn't, it hasn't really mattered who it is. It hasn't mattered if it's Dwight, JaVale, Montres Harrell, Andre Drummond. When he's out there with another guy that that is an interior player, AD becomes more of a jump shooter and he gets to the rim less. If he's shooting like 60% on his mid-range jumpers, Over a 20 game playoff sample, nothing matters schematically. Like, there's, (laughs) you don't need to accomplish anything if you can always fall back on just an automatic, like unsustainably high, crazy uh, mid range shooting thing from, from AD, which you shouldn't be game planning for and banking on moving forward. But when it happens, it's special and that's how you win a title. But when that's not happening and you look at that larger sample, we see why, even though Dwight and JaVale that season were doing their jobs pretty well offensively, like finishing really well, they did what we needed them to do. Even with that going well, their offensive impact wasn't impressive. 33rd percentile for Dwight, 24th percentile for JaVale McGee, using our offensive LeBron statistic. And that just speaks to, like from a fit standpoint, the Lakers team as a whole isn't better when 80s playing with a center like that. It's better when he's playing center himself or he's playing with a spacing center. And so if we get AD playing the five and then Dwight playing the rest of the five minutes or DeAndre Jordan also playing the rest of the five minutes and they're out there playing with like a Trevor Reza or a Carmelo Anthony or hell, even LeBron James is their power forward with Dwight rather than AD, we're going to see the offensive impact rise I think it just comes down to lineup construction and making sure that you don't have clunky skill set fits in there together uh and you know that is really what's going to swing them from being still below average offensive impact guys even if they themselves are doing everything right and them being positive offensive impact players. So that's it for today. That's uh thanks for being here with us. We've got a lot more on the way. I mean I'm not even halfway through the questions that came in, so there's gonna be some more of this, and uh, that's the show. Actually, you know what? Let's let's dig into one more. If Rajan Rondo were a food continent, which one would he be? And would it be the same for playoff rondo? So I think you have to pick something that is you have to pick two that are similar but different kind of versions of themselves. So I'll say regular season rondo is mustard. Got that strong flavor it, which we know Rajan Rondo has. We know he's a jerk, but to opponents in a nasty way, to teammates in a way that like holds them accountable. So it's okay, we like it. When he's on your team, you like it. Mustard probably isn't the primary flavor you're looking for in a dish, but as a complimentary flavor, can really raise the dish. If you're really lacking some of that flavor, throw some mustard on there. You're, you're gonna get a better experience. And I think that's what Rajan Rondo can bring. In the playoffs, my man's Honey Mustard. Same idea, but just elevated and, and can absolutely make a dish with its flavor. We have, I know we've been going, we've been cooking a lot at home and going through a bunch of recipes and some of my favorite recipes for honey mustard. And that is how Rajan Rado can be. It's not what you need all the time. Like honey mustard isn't the right flavor for every situation. And there were playoff games where he was not the right flavor and it didn't work out well but then there were also playoff games where it was just like like this is exactly what we needed and you want us a couple games and overall like really solid so that is those are my thoughts on Rajon Rondo and the condiments that he would be I love these questions we need more questions like this all right thanks everyone for joining us signing off Cranjus McBasketball with the Lakers Successful Podcast feel free to rate and review on iTunes Apple Podcasts Uh, sharing the pod helps us out if you'd like to join our discord server go ahead and you know subscribe to the Patreon that we have patreon.com slash Cranjus or go ahead and shoot over a five star review a screenshot of a five star review to my DMs and we can get you in that discord server have some fun in there talk some trash uh, scouts and players, all sorts of things. We're working on a big project for a Pod coming up probably in the next seven days that I'm really excited about where we really dig into Rob Palenka and every move he's made <laughs> that we know about, it, whether it be a transaction or you know transactions that attempted to happen, ideas he had, ideas he shot down, but really digging into Rob Palenka and everything he's done, evaluating it using a rubric, and really seeing how he grades out so that's something i'm excited for it takes a ton of work to do it right but we're putting that work in it's it's it'll be weeks in the making by the time you hear it but we, we hope you enjoy that if you enjoyed this again rate and review share this with your friends share this with your teammates share this with your coworkers. it it really you know that this that's what it's all about and really appreciate all of you have a good one have a great rest of your day and enjoy some football football's back baby